No, 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 no. Hello. Hello, John. How are you? Oh, hello, Dan. How's everything going? Hello, Dan. <laughs> yeah. Ha <laughs> Woo. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So what's up? You sound good. Very awake. You texted me much earlier than usual saying to confirm our time. And this gives me the impression that perhaps you were awake. Uh, no, I rolled over and went back to sleep immediately <laughs> after you confirmed our time. Okay. So that's all I was looking for. You were just trying to determine how much time you had left to sleep. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and if mm-hmm. I had said, oh, I can't today, I have, something has come up, you would still be sleeping, I imagine. I would have gone back to sleep. That's right. If you had said, if you had said anything other than what you said, I would have done something different or the same. Yeah. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. So yeah, just checking in with people. There's a lot, uh, there's just, I've been doing a lot of things. So, and a lot of things to do. So, uh, like what, what I prefer to do is sleep, uh, sleep in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that hasn't, that hasn't been, uh, much of an option for me. Lately, no, so. no, definitely not. Yeah. You get a lot going on. Oh yeah. You know, busy, busy, busy. There's a, there's a, there's a whole busy, there's a whole busy thing, you know? People like to be busy. They like to, um, they like to not like to be busy. You know what I mean? Yes. They like to be busy and they like to, then they like to have that be the problem. So for instance, I talked to a friend of mine last night who's very busy. Yeah. He's so busy and he's always for, for 20 years, he said, oh, I wish I could do that fun thing, but I can't because I'm so busy. And I have said for 20 years, well, you could probably do the thing. And he's like, I wish I could. He owns his own business. You mm-hmm, see? Mm-hmm. And, uh, last night it was the first time that he said in it, he said it, but he said it in a kind of way that was like, I've done this to myself. Okay. And I, and I nodded. I, you know, he's, he's not unaware that he's done it to himself, but, but I think he's, I don't think he's, I don't think he's prepared to, to change course in his life. You know what I mean? I don't think he's ready to not have that be the case. Uh So I don't know. So there must be something about it that he likes that he needs. Like it works for him in some way. Yeah. Although he, although he professes to be miserable. So I don't know. From my perspective, I'm not sure how to how to uh, how to interpret that when when busyness is the addiction, because I know a lot of people where drug is the addiction or alcohol is the addiction, and they recognize that it makes them miserable yeah. and that it's that it consumes their life and that it, it impacts their relationships and it makes them unhealthy, but they keep doing it. And we look at them and we go, oh, they're a drug addicted person. Mm-hmm. But when it's busyness that's doing the same thing, affecting their health, you know, depriving them of enjoyment, making their relationships suffer, uh, you know, making them miserable for decades, we admire the person in a lot of cases. We go, wow, they're industrious and, and, uh, 
they're, uh, you know, they're doing work, which is the, which is the ultimate virtue in, in our American society. But I, you know, you almost want to stage an intervention and say, stop it. You're hurting yourself. You're, you are, um, you, there's, you could be doing something else. You could stop doing this drug and, and go, go on long walks and, and uh, wake up late. And the person goes, yeah, easy for you to say, which is just exactly what a, what a, a drug addict says. And, you know, I don't, I'm not somebody that wants to apply the drug addiction uh, model, the drug addiction analogy to every obsessive behavior, every behavior that, that uh, vaguely resembles it. You know, like Alcoholics Anonymous meetings branched off into 10,000 little splinter groups, Overeaters Anonymous, uh, uh, Sex Addiction Anonymous, you know, the gambling addiction, like yeah. it all, it, it used to be that if you were, if you wanted to go to AA and talk about those things, you could, it, the, the old mustache Pete's didn't like it, but fuck those guys. But now you can find a group that applies the 12 step principle to almost anything that ails you. And I'm I mean, always I mean, a little that, bit. Is that- is that good or bad? I can't tell if you're saying that that's a good thing or a bad thing. I feel, uh, I, I feel conflicted about it because I think there's been a lot of damage done culturally to the proliferation of 12 step programs just in the, just in dealing with drugs and alcohol because my conviction is that 12 step programs work if people come to them with with like humility and a desire to stop drinking and you know it says it we uh, people in aa will say it works if you work it that's the little the little meme but what it means is it's not a AA isn't a cudgel. 12 step programs can't just grab somebody off the street and put them on a bus with barred windows and say, we're going to 12 strip step the shit out of you. And you're going to get, you're going to get cured. You know, they don't work that way. You come to them and say, I've tried everything. I am beat. Mm. And I will do what you say. Basically even though it feels super weird for me to talk to you strangers about God, it feels super weird for me to admit that I'm powerless over alcohol, but I'm so beat that I'm willing to do these, like these things that I consider indignities and I consider them indignities because I have so much pride, but I recognize my pride has led me to this fall. So, I surrender, I submit. And you know, you come into AA, you're not submitting to any, there's no, it's not like you get taken into a room and there's a tribunal. Nobody becomes your boss. There's no hierarchy in it. You're just submitting to the idea that you can't fix it yourself. Right, by yourself. 
But what happened was AA and 12-step principles got plucked out of that pretty rarefied situation. It's a very intense and rare situation because there are a lot of drunks who will never, ever, ever bend the knee. Not to AA, you know, and, you know, I'm sure there are drunks right now listening to this program that are like, I'm not going to fucking bend the knee to AA. It's like, you're not doing that. You're not, there is no AA. You're not, it's not a group that you are submitting to. It's, you're submitting to the idea. You are submitting. The first thing you say is I am powerless over alcohol. And that is the thing that frankly, most drunks cannot do. They won't do. Most addicts of all kinds will not say that they're powerless over the thing. They will say they have it under control. What, or all what they is, need to do is one more thing. What is it about that 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 is so difficult to do? Well, that is the that's the ultimate question, Dan. And that is why we talk about those things as a disease. Clearly, they're not a disease in the sense that we use the word disease in every other instance. Mm -hmm. They're not, you know, addiction is not a disease that you can catch or pass on. It, 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 it is not a genetic disease in the sense of it being, um, really identifiable in the genescape. Um, but it's but disease is the best description of what this mental and spiritual affliction is uh, because it's hyper resistant to any kind of cure and it's and it's but it's not like a it's not the same as as other psychological disorders either. It's not just, um, it's not uniform, but it has a lot of similarities that are shared by everyone that, that suffers from it. And it's mental, but also very, very much a, like a, some kind of soul disease. And that makes it difficult for a lot of people who are rationalists to confront because rationally you should be able to make a chain of decisions. You should be able to, um, follow a plan and resolve the situation. That's why you see so many addicts of all kinds who say, all right, well, from now on, I'm only going to gamble on Fridays or from now on, I'm going to, switch the color of binders and I'm going to adopt this 14 point organization plan. And I'm only going to, I'm only going to drink light beer from Miller. And you know, they, um, they try to get a hold of things with a plan and then that plan falls apart. And rather than recognize over and over again, that, that there is no plan that can help you here. 
they switch their attention to the next plan. They make a new, oh, well, the problem with that was the color of the binders was wrong and they got to get new, new binders, whole new set of binders. So it's, it's variously like an ego problem, a, um, like a hubris problem. In a lot of cases you can, most alcoholics can look back at their lives and recognize that they were on the same path a long time before they started drinking or they, they can find things in their past that will make everybody at an AA meeting laugh. And it's a laugh of recognition when they'll, you know, when they can kind of acknowledge that, um, that there was always this thing in them that they were either the greatest or the worst in, in every situation it would, and it could oscillate 15 times in a day. You walk in and you're the greatest and you're the fucking greatest. Mm -hmm. And then you're the fucking worst. And this, this constant sense of, uh, of like a disproportionate, sense of yourself you're neither the greatest nor the worst in any one of these situations but you really feel like you are and um it's a kind of you know it 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 dovetails with a lot of mental disorders but again it's it's in its own class and alcohol and drugs don't it's not them Right, because there are plenty of people that that have a beer every day or two beers every day and don't become drug addicts. There, there, there are people out there that like smoke a joint every once in a while. <laughs> I can't believe that there are. They astonish me. I think there are people out there that have a little bit of heroin every once in a while. I mean, What's the I, astonishing part for you about that? Because it, because it never occurred to me the first time I got high on anything, it's all I wanted to do from then on uh, with that thing, right? Like the first time I got drunk, I didn't immediately want to go out and get drunk the ne next day. Mm -hmm. That, that wasn't what happened. It was that the next time I had an opportunity to get drunk, the next time somebody handed me a beer or a, a California cooler in my case, the idea that I wouldn't drink as many of them as I could it didn't make any sense to me. Why would you have one? Do you know what happens when you have two? Have you tried it? Have you tried having three? It's incredible. And people would say like, well, you know, let's have a beer. And I'd be like, let's have as many beers as it takes to get that feeling back. And with, you know, with pot and other drugs, like there are people that take LSD every day. I can't imagine them. I can't fathom that either, but I wouldn't, um, if I were taking LSD, I wouldn't want to take it once a year. It, I'd want it to be a part of my, my overall drug catalog that meant that today was LSD day. Tomorrow was like a day of rest where I only got drunk and stoned. And then the following day was let's try some other, let's try some pills day. 
but being being able to be messed up, I would prefer to be messed up. And for somebody to be like, yeah, I had a beer. Let's call it a night. I just never, not only didn't I ever feel that, but it got to the point where I really couldn't have done that. If I had, if I went out for a beer with a couple of people and we would finish our deal and they would say, okay, well, good night. That was fun. They would leave by the front door of the bar and I would leave by the back door because I'd be headed out to meet up with some other people somewhere to have some more beers. Or I would, I'd say, okay, I'll, you know, I'll see you guys later. And I'd go to the bathroom and then I'd come back out and sit back down at the bar stool. You know, that there wasn't ever a, a feeling of drinking beer or smoking pot as a component of a normal, what what you would call like a regular life. Because the, because the reason you would do that is you had stuff to do tomorrow. You had to get to work or there were, you had obligations tomorrow. And for me, those obligations tomorrow did not, were not any kind of, um, check on what I wanted to do tonight. And my, yeah, that rational mind would say, Oh, I got tomorrow covered. Don't worry about that. You know, I'll figure out tomorrow when it's tomorrow. And there are, but the thing is, Dan, there are plenty of alcoholics that keep their shit dialed in. They keep a lid screwed down tight. They go out and they get blotto and they do wake up on time and they do get to work in the morning and they do make, maintain their responsibilities so that they feel like you can't come at them. You know, they're unassailable. They're getting the job done. So get off their back. So my version of being an alcoholic and that person's version of being an alcoholic, it's totally different in the, in the, um, you know, from the top down view, they're getting their shit to, they're getting, you know, they're rich. Even they are alcoholics who are fucking billionaires and politicians who manage to get it all lined up, but they suffer from the exact same thing I do. And they're, you know, they're decayed inside. But they're, you know, Steve Bannon is never going to go to an AA meeting. He's going to drink himself to death right in front of everybody. So I think most, most people that suffer from that stuff don't ever, don't ever hit a wall where they say, I need to do anything but this. Even something so degrading as going and sitting in a room full of other people that also pursued this to its end. We would like to say thanks to HelloFresh. This is the meal kit delivery service that shops and plans and delivers step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy and that they, they make it so easy to do all of this. This is the thing that I love about them the most is that they're doing the planning. They're doing the shopping. They're doing the prepping. You don't have to think about it. It's like, here, what do you want to make? We don't even have to worry about it. We've got 
the meals right here. We can't forget anything. You can't have anything missing. It makes it super simple. A lot of the time, what I've been talking about when I, I talk about HelloFresh is how nice it is to cook finally with your family. If you have kids like mine that don't want to try anything new half the time, my son wants to try new stuff. My daughter never wants to try anything new. So the way that I have uh, gotten her to try new foods is to cook with her, to involve her in the process. If I say, come over here and stir stir this thing, she'll stir it. Now she's going to want to eat it. Oh, can you add the ingredients? She'll put the different ingredients in. She'll get everything ready. And then all of a sudden, there's the interest there and she's interested in trying it. And the ingredients are so nice. They're all fresh. They're all pre-measured. And there's easy to follow six-step recipe cards. You can show, these come to your door each week. They're in a special insulated box. My kids love opening the box and looking at the food and looking what the meals are going to be. I like it too. And then you don't have to spend that time planning and grocery shopping. That time is now back. And all of the meals come together in 30 minutes, maximum, some a lot less. They call for less than two pots and pans, and there's very, very minimal cleanup. All of the things that are important to me, especially if you're busy, whether you're busy with work or kids or family or other things. And there are so many cool features. They have HelloFresh dinner to lunch. They have 20-minute meals, gourmet. They've got one-pot wonders. There's so many cool things that they have. Because the whole point is get you to eat healthy, but make it easy. They can have that. They can run with that. Now, here's the deal. For 80 bucks off your first month of HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com slash Roadwork80. Roadwork80. That is the, you have to remember that promo code to get 80 bucks off your first month. But that's easy to remember, right? You're getting 80 bucks off. So it's HelloFresh.com slash Roadwork80. Promo code is ROADWORK80. It's like getting eight meals free. So again, to get $20 off your first four boxes, it's HelloFresh.com slash ROADWORK80. Promo code to use is ROADWORK80. Thanks very much to HelloFresh for making this show possible. You know, you talk about not wanting to stop, you know, starting and, and not wanting to stop. And I was talking to a friend about this whose brother is you know, like that, like he wouldn't go and have a a beer or even two. It's he's, it might take 12 beers, but like six beers and a bottle of wine. I mean, it's, it's full on. And when I've talked to and I know him and I've talked to him about it. And I said, like, what, what makes you keep going after the first one or second one? And I think it's, you just, you said kind of the same thing that he said, which was, you know, that it's, you want to get whatever that feeling is that you're looking for. You go until you get that feeling. But sometimes it seems like you keep going well past that feeling also. Is that true well, or is that accidental or is that, is that, do I have it wrong? <coughs> You'll see this in any bar where Normal people go in and are having a good time. And as a, as a longtime sober person who spends a lot of time in bars and parties, yeah, you can tell just by the sound where you are in the night, because at the beginning of the night, there's, you know, a murmur of chatting and then, you know, a couple of hours into the event, 
there's a lively sound of of uh you know fun kind of burble and banter and uh you know every once in a while somebody goes ha 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 and there's some tinkling of glasses and so forth and the music goes up a little bit and then there's a point in the in the sort of mid to late evening 10 o'clock 11 o'clock maybe where the party peaks and it's the conversation is just it's it's loud in the room. It's kind of sparkling. There's laughter. You can look around the room and people, you know, somebody's doing an impression and the music's loud and, you know, a couple of people are dancing and, and, um, and you're like, this is a fun party. And then at 12 PM, you have the same party still seems fun. But over here, there's somebody going, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> and over here, there are, you know, there's another person that's like, no, 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 no. And it's a, it's a little too loud. And there's like a girl shrieking somewhere. And uh, somebody bumps into you as they walk past and spills your drink, but they don't look back. They don't say sorry. And at that point, you realize that everybody who got to 11 o'clock and looked around and was like, this is great. They felt great. They felt funny. Yeah, alcohol was doing its job. Mm-hmm. They felt lively. Their conversation was really interesting. They, their friends all looked great to them. This was the best night of their life. And they all wanted to keep that going. And they all wanted one more beer to do it. But what one more beer does is it takes that, it takes a a big 20% chunk out of the inhibition in the room that was keeping the party cool. And it makes the party start to get unruly. And at that point, when I'm not working, if I'm just at a party and not there to put on a show, when I hear that pitch change happen, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, I, I twist the egg timer on how much longer I'm going to be at this party because the next thing that happens is it starts to suck because, because people are yelling mm-hmm. at each other, you know, and not, not angry. They're just, they've forgotten that they don't need to yell at each other. They're all around the room. People are like, no, you dude, no, <laughs> and it just sound, it starts to sound like shit. Frankly, mm-hmm. it doesn't sound fun anymore. You look around the room and you're like, I don't want to be part of that group. I don't want to be part of that group. That doesn't seem fun either. And people are, are, uh, getting in arguments. They're, they're bumping into each other. You run into some friends and you're like, Hey man, how's it going? And they're, you know, their eyes are a little out of focus. And they're like, Oh, what's up, John, man, I haven't seen you in a long time. And it's like, I'm out. I am out. There's because I'm not going to get anything else out of that party. But the, the thing is that all those people, all the people that are in that party think they're still having a great time. And they think those conversations they're having are, are amazing that they're really getting to the bottom of shit, Dan. And if you listen in from over the top, yeah. 
it's all the these conversations like, what if? No, wait, 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 wait. What if the president is actually working for the company? And you're just like, fuck you. This is stupid. But they think they're smart as shit, and their friends are either listening like raptly or also just sort of not listening or <laughs> whatever. Like the, the social glue has come, has gotten soft at that point. And if you follow that party, you'll find that people are stumbling out. They're getting in their cars and driving drunk. They're getting into fist fights with each other. They're having those relationship fights where one person is crying and the other person is standing over them. They're vomiting. And at each stage of that party, a certain group of people, 10% of them, every, every one of these micro stages, 10% of them peel off, right? There are people that leave the party at nine. There are people that leave the party at 10. There are people that are like, okay, well we got to get home because the babysitter and they're gone. There are people that only came to see the opening band or after the second band, they're like, oh, I really want to stay, but I'm just cashed. I got to be at work tomorrow. They peel off. So by the end, it's a smaller group for sure, but it's not all drug addicts that are there. It's not all professional alcoholics. Most of those people are normals who are chasing the dragon or not normals, people that are, that are abusing alcohol and drugs who may not be alcoholics. They're, they, they use those drugs badly, embarrassingly. Um, and they're on their way to having some bad times, but like, you know, alcoholics, um, I mean, there are a lot of different kinds, but, uh, you know, they're not, they're not weekend warriors, you know, <coughs> they, they, they don't just get messed up at a show once in a while. And honestly, there are alcoholics that drink once a year. It's just every time they drink, they get, you know, they, they black out, puke all over themselves and wake up without their shoes or their wallet. But that chasing the dragon, that feeling like, I love where this party is. I love how I feel right now. I wish it could last forever. And, and the way I'm going to try and accomplish that is with one more drink. Like, and, and alcohol and drugs play a role in that because, because they do flip a switch in our minds that, that inspires us to say one more, one more. And, if you become an addict, you long, long ago got the last good thing out of that drug. Like the first time you did it, it blew your mind. You never felt so alive. The second time you did it, it only felt better. But there's a, but there's a moment where you're never going to feel that good again. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the circumstance. Doesn't matter how, uh, how little or much you drink. You can be at your daughter's wedding and you're, and the, and having a drink of champagne at your daughter's wedding is still not going to be any good. It's so you feel like you're 
always trying to recapture it. And you have that glass of champagne at your daughter's wedding and you're like, this is the best, but you know that you know that it's not, you know, that some, in some crucial place in your, in your soul, you know, that this glass of champagne is the beginning of how you're going to ruin your daughter's wedding. It's not, it's not helping you find that magic place anymore, but it doesn't keep you from chasing it. Cause it's all, you know, you know, it's the only you, the first time you had that drink and it made you feel finally complete or it made it gave you that feeling of just like I'm there I arrived I'm at I'm I'm finally the person I wanted to be you never felt that feeling any other way so you connect it to to alcohol you you make the mistake of thinking that it was it's not it's not a it's not a mind mistake either it's a like a mind soul body mistake a feeling like it's a path. It's a path to a kind of enlightenment that you desire. And long after the evidence shows that that the alcohol or the drug is actually is permanently impeding your ability to get back to that place, uh, you, you can't you can't accept it. And I was kind of, as you were saying that, I was trying to, to figure what, don't, don't people though kind of learn that they're not going to achieve it? Like don't, don't, aren't they able to see how things tend to go or is that a hard lesson to learn? See, cause, cause I don't, I have not, and I want to hear your answer to that, but I, I want to comment like my, generally speaking, my goal has been to to not be in those situations, to not be in those kinds of places, to not hang out with the people who are doing that. Not saying I wouldn't hang out with someone who does that, but just not being there when they do it. You know, not being around drunk people has been a, an, a, not a high priority goal of mine, but it's worked out that way. You know, I, I'm not in places where people are generally speaking, where people are drunk. I don't know what the etiquette is being around drunk people. I've only been drunk myself a f- couple f- times, maybe twice in college. And it was so unpleasant for me. <laughs> so unpleasant. There was nothing good about it. I didn't feel good physically. I didn't feel good mentally. I wasn't having a good time. And the next day I felt horrible. And after doing it, maybe the second time I'm like, that's, that's just not a thing for me. That's not a thing I want to do again. And I didn't seem to advance any relationships through the process. I didn't, nothing good came out of it. And after the second, maybe third time that I did it, my takeaway was lose, lose situation. No, no purpose for that. And I did enjoy the way that I felt after like a drink. Um, that was fine. That was nice. You know, I could get that from a martini, a glass of wine, a beer if I wanted one. But the situation for me never really improved that much with the second drink. And by the fourth or fifth drink, it had gotten a lot worse. I wasn't having a better time. I was having a worse time. 
And it's not like uh, weed where you, you get to a certain level of your high and then things, things seem to kind of get better. They might get worse, but sometimes they would get better. Music might sound really good. You know, you, you, you feel really relaxed and nice, but with alcohol, it never, I never really got any of those kinds of benefits from it. And also I saw a lot of people who were drinking. It was almost like, you know, I almost put it in the scope of like, I generally, I know we do a little on this show, but I generally don't get into politics discussions with people because very few people hold my bizarre kind of viewpoints on the world. And I find that it just creates problems. It just creates issues because two people who might've been friends all of a sudden realize that one's a Democrat, one's a Republican and they hate each other now. It's better to just not talk about it. You know, it's better to just let that be a thing that, that you don't bring into the relationship. Instead, let's go bowling or whatever it is that you do. And for me, that's kind of how I felt when like people would start drinking. I'd say, well, yeah, this is, this is a good time for me to head out because what I liked about you uh, is now going to go away. This, mm-hmm. this other person's going to come out now. And the things that I liked about you will be pushed down and, and, and muffled and maybe go away entirely. And worse potential, the things I don't really like about you will get amplified now. So this is a good time for me to, as you say, peel off. This is a good time to, to head out because I've had the drink now, maybe even the second one. And so have you. You're now ordering more. And I can see that, not you particularly, but the person. That, it would be me. But they're, that you're getting more drinks now. And whatever has started to emerge after your second or third drink, now the fourth and fifth drink are going to amplify that. And any kind of quality conversation that I might've had with you, which is why I'm there, that's, there's no chance of that anymore. You're not going to want to talk about that. You're probably going to punch me again in the shoulder Mm -hmm. when you tell Mm -hmm. that joke. And this is the point where I kind of get, to be honest, I would get bored. I would be bored. And I remember in college, my roommate, he was, um, he was get, trying to get into a, a couple different fraternities and he did not drink at all. Like he didn't ever drink. And I said, well, what do you want to be in a frat for? If you don't drink, that's what they exist for. That's mm-hmm. the main reason is for the parties and the alcohol. And he's like, no, no, no. It, they lifelong friends and a really great way to like, you know, one day you want to go get a job. So you go in there and you find out the guy's got in the same frat as you and you do the secret handshake and now you've got the job. I said, well, you might be right about that, but there's also the potential to just get the job on the merits of your qualifications and your personality. And he was a very personable guy, very smart, very, very funny. I'm like, Tom, you don't really need this. Like you don't need the frat. He's like, no, no, it's really, it's a thing I really want to do. I really want to do it. So he went out and uh, what do I call it? Rushing, right? Rushing where you go to mm-hmm. join the frat. And so he, right. he was doing all, there were these weeks of rushing and he was going to all the things for all the different frat parties. None of these frats wanted him. Mm-hmm. None of them wanted him because he did not drink. He would walk around with nothing or with a cup of water and everybody else would have their, you know, their red cups with beer in them and be lining up at the keg. 
And they could see that despite the fact that he was really funny and a great guy, they wanted nothing to do with him because it's not like he would stop at the second beer. He would not have any beer. And they knew right away, whatever it is that they wanted to come out in that environment, in that situation, that would never happen with him. And that was the same reason that he'd be like, oh, come with me to this one. Come with me and rush to this one with me. I'm like, I'm not going to join the frat. He's like, yeah, but just come on out, like hang out. You know, I'm like, fine. And I would go with him and I'd have a beer or two because they were there. It was college. But then after that, I was done. But yet, even with my very minimal, especially considering it was college, my almost non-existent beer consumption, I was more accepted, not wanting to rush, not wanting to be a part of the frat. Then he was desperately trying to be there. And, you know, that was kind of a, an early kind of feeling for me that, you know, like that whole environment wasn't like, I never did the whole binge drinking thing that so many of my friends did. And I always used to think it was because when I was raised, especially at the, like the Jewish holidays, we would always, I would always get to drink wine. And my parents didn't care if I had a second glass of wine. You know, you're a kid, you have a little bit, you get a little bit of buzz, you feel good, it wears off, it's done. But wine or beer, alcohol in general was never something that was prohibited to me. Like if I had said to my mom, I would like to have a little taste of wine, she probably would have given it to me. And it wasn't, it never seemed like it was a big deal. And yet I knew people that were always like, oh, I really, like, I really want to get like some beer, like my friend can get us some. I was like, what's the allure of that? Like, so what? I have that. I had that with, you know, dinner on Rosh Hashanah the other night. Like who, who cares? Why is that a big deal? It didn't seem like a thing to me. And I always had thought that that was the, that was the reason why I missed out because it wasn't a taboo thing. It wasn't an exciting thing. I never even equated it to the way I felt when I had it because generally after the second one, I didn't feel good. So I, for me, I always was so puzzled. I'm like, why, why are these people drinking? Why don't they just stop after one or two? Why do something that's knowingly going to make you feel sick? And then they make bad decisions and potentially do dumb things. And I, could, I never understood it. I understand it better now, but only through hearing other people tell me about it. And maybe I'm lucky in the fact that more than two or three drinks makes me feel sick. You are lucky. I don't know. That is a, that is a, you are, you do have a kind of physiology. There are plenty of people that have two drinks and are just like gross. Right. And so you'll never know what it feels like to feel the other thing. And the people that feel great after two beers and only want more. Um, they're just, they're built a certain way. I think it's the majority though. Wouldn't you? I think I'm a, a very abnormal in that way. I think less abnormal than you, than maybe you think, but yeah, not, maybe not the majority. I mean, there are an awful lot of people that just don't put themselves in situations where they have a drink. They go out after work with their coworkers. They get a glass of something. It sits there at their elbow. They take a couple of sips of it and then they get up to leave at a, at a amount of time that feels like it accomplished the social grace 
and they leave their drink sitting there. I mean, as somebody who's worked in bars, you find a lot of drinks sitting there with two sips taken out of them. Right. That somebody bought. Right. Um, and, and frankly, there are, there are plenty of drunks who are walking around, uh, I mean, walking around a cheap bar, not probably not a, a nice bar in a hotel, but there are plenty of people that are, that are vulturing those, those left behind drinks. I mean, I used to, if somebody, if I looked over and there was a group of people putting on their coat coats and there was half a pitcher of beer left on their table, um, I would position myself so that the perfect moment between when they turned their backs on the table and started to move toward the door, but before anybody from the bar looked at the table and, and decided they were going to go bus it. Yeah. There's this, there was always this opening where you could grab a, you could grab that, that half of a pitcher. And then I would return to my area with a half a pitcher of beer and I, to a certain group of people, I'd be a hero. Where'd the beer come from? Oh, you know, like, um, these are, these are fucking skid row bars or whatever, or whatever, you know, right. uh, not, not, not like nice bars, but, but Dan, in answer to your question from before, yeah. the reason that, um, as things get bad for addicts mm-hmm. of all kinds, they don't, recognize it is that they believe that, and this is again, back to the hubris problem. They believe that they have insight into the truth of the matter insight into how things actually are. So that when things start to go south for them, they, they neither go, I don't know what's happening. Nor do they go, wow, what's the common denominator in all this? Oh, me and my drinking is the common denominator in all my problems. They don't see it either way. They tend to look at it and go, the world is made in such a way that people are corrupt and things are stacked against me. It's unfair because of the following conditions. Um, you know, my suffering is, is because I see the truth of the, of the world, you know, I'm unhappy and that's just, my wife is a bitch and a nag. Um, you know, my boss is an asshole. Like there's always, and it's not just that it's always someone else's fault. It is that the, that the addict feels like they have a handle on what is so, you know, and it's part of why they think they can cure themselves because they have a handle on it. They know how the system works. They know how the systems work. And this is a big debate within recovering alcoholics. Was that always there? Like, is that a sign of alcoholism before you ever have a drink? Or is that a thing that, the alcohol produces in people because we can all find examples of, of, uh, that kind that manner in ourselves, but it becomes a, almost a characteristic of being an addict. The feeling that you're wiser 
than other people. So this friend of mine that drank himself to death this past year, um, early this year, I went to see him in rehab. I went to talk to him over the course of a few years at his house. We would go do things. We went out on his boat. He was a wealthy guy with a successful family. And he knew me, like we knew each other, we drank together, we partied together uh, 20, 30 years ago. And he knew me when I got sober, and he was like confused by it, but he was a good-natured person and a good-natured friend. And so when I got sober, he was just like, all right, well, whatever. You're John Roderick. You go your own way. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, man, that's right. Uh, but by the time his drinking was destroying him and I was going to talk to him about it and to say like, hey, there's a, there is a path out here if you, if you want. Like he, he knew me well. He knew a lot about what it had been like for me to spend the last 20 years sober. He knew my life was not over or ruined or uncool, you know, like, um, and he often would tell other people that, that I was his, the smartest person he'd ever met. You know, I would hear this from people. Mark says you're the smartest guy he's ever met. So it wasn't that he thought I was a, an idiot or blind or uninformed. Like he's a conservative guy. And he, uh, during my campaign for city council, he said, I disagree with everything that you say politically. And if you were elected to the city council, you would make my life a lot harder, <laughs> uh, as a business person, but I'm going to give you the maximum donation because I know that you are trying to do a good job and that I feel like you're trying to help people and that is worth um, supporting. And I was like, right on, man. Just at this point, just give me the money. I don't want to hear your fucking soliloquy. <laughs> but, that, but that's what sucks about running for office. But he, in those long conversations that we would have about his drinking – when I would say, look, you're, uh, you're drinking yourself to death now. This isn't like a game anymore. Um, you're, you're 49 years old and you're sitting here in rehab for the third time. I know you're embarrassed. I know this is humiliating. There is a path and you know that it's fine because I'm sitting here in front of you. You know that you can walk the path and come out the other side and you're still the same guy, right? I'm still the same guy I was when you knew me when I was 20. I'm still, you know, funny and fun. And he would go, yeah, yeah, I know. I know. It's just, you know, I feel, I feel like this time I really got it on, on the ropes. I feel like this time it's, you know, I've got it figured out. And I would say, Mark, it's not a thing that you figure out. You don't go to rehab and then you figured it out. It's a thing that's going to creep up on you again. And he's like, yeah, I know, I know. But that last time, boy, it got so bad. I'm never going to do that again. And I said, Mark, that's not how it works. 
if it was enough that just something bad happened, then there wouldn't be any alcoholics because something bad always happens. Something awful happens. And yet people go back to drinking, Mm -hmm. right? People lose their entire families. People lose all their money. People burn down their house. People are permanently scarred. People die. And they, it's never that something really shitty happened one night and that's it for you. If you're, if you're an alcoholic, which you are. Right. And he would say, yeah, I know, I know, but boy, this time and what he was doing and he was humiliated, but he was keeping a brave face and he was telling me to fuck off and he was telling me to fuck off because somewhere and telling everybody else in his life to fuck off because somewhere in him, he felt like he had it. He's got, he's got it this time. He's, he's got it figured out. He's gonna, he's gonna do it himself and he doesn't need help. We would like to say thank you very much to Peloton. If you're looking for new ways to get your cardio fit in during your busy schedule, if you think that cycling classes just aren't that much of a workout, you just haven't tried Peloton. You know, Men's Health calls the Peloton bike the best cardio machine on the planet. And it really is. I have tried these out. And I'll tell you what, I was definitely, you know, when I was in high school, I used to ride my 10 speed quite a bit. And when I was younger than that, I used to ride my BMX, but those were always for fun. It was always for recreation. And to be honest, I never really thought that much about riding a bike like this to get back into shape or to get into shape. But you know what? The Peloton is awesome. It will make you rethink the way you looked at cycling classes. That's exactly what it did for me. It's immersive. It's empowering. And you get that heart-pounding cardio experience that you've been looking for probably because what? You want to get in better shape. You want to lose some weight. And you know that the best way to do it is to really work up a sweat. And that's the thing. They have world-class instructors riding right by your side. You get real-time motivation and coaching from a ton of unique styles and personalities. And this really helps keep your workout fresh. You can change up your cardio with rides that span a variety of lengths and difficulty levels, themes, and music genres. There's up to 12 live classes daily and thousands on demand are waiting. And this is the best part, is they're going to help keep you motivated. You can compete with yourself, obviously, but with everyone else on the live class leaderboards, real-time performance metrics, you can track your calories, your resistance, your cadence, your output, your heart rate. Peloton is offering a limited time offer. You're going to get 100 bucks off accessories when you purchase the Peloton bike and you're going to get a great cardio workout at home. So you can go to onepeloton.com and use the promo code ROADWORK to get started. Again, onepeloton.com and promo code ROADWORK to get your discount. Go check it out. Awesome instructors, awesome bike, and get back into shape or get into shape for the first time. Why not give it a shot? Thanks, Peloton. And the thing about it is he was a religious guy. He went to church. He had a he had a priest that he, that took his confession and the, and, and, you know, like old family friend type of situation. He believed in God, but he couldn't transfer that. And I'm sure he prayed to God and I'm sure 
um, he, you know, they tried a religious cure on him too, but he never admitted he, he didn't have the power to solve his own problem. He could never go that crazy, what seems like a tiny little step, but what is a crazy step, a, a, an enormous gulf for people in that situation to honestly step over and say, you know what? I just don't have the power to fix it. I'm not looking for something to like get me straight so that I can resume having the power over myself. I honestly have arrived at a place where I know for a fact I do not have the power. And, and I mean, part of my aloha, part of everything that I try to do to keep me going through life is, is acknowledging that I still don't have the power. I never did. None of us do truly have the power to make the world the shape we want it to be, right. the shape we think it ought to be. It's just in alcohol or addiction, you, you're, ne- you're, you're never convinced. It, it, it's, it's put in such bold relief because all we're talking about is you. Like, it's easy for people to say, well, I don't have any power over global economics. But it's, it's also true for all of us that we don't even have power really over ourselves. We have, I mean, because when I quit drinking, you'd be astonished, maybe you wouldn't, at the number of people that congratulate me on my willpower. Wow, you've got a lot of willpower. It's like, if willpower was all it took to quit drinking, there wouldn't be any alcoholics because hardly anybody doesn't have enough willpower to not, you know, who doesn't have enough willpower to not pick up a, a cream soda. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all can just be like, look, I don't want a cream. I'm never going to have a cream soda again. I mean, it's hard, but I mean, how many times have I said, I don't, I'm never going to eat a DiGiorno's pizza again. It's a bit just bad for you. There's no, whatever nutrition I'm getting out of a DiGiorno's pizza is not worth (laughs) the amount of sugar bread. Right. I mean, DiGiorno's pizza is basically a cinnamon roll with pepperoni on it. (laughs) But I bought a DiGiorno's pizza yesterday because I'm in the supermarket and I'm like, one DiGiorno's pizza won't hurt me. Like we don't. We're not masters of ourselves and the ones that are that, 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 that do it through like just pure fist clenching grit, they're fucking miserable. Their, their sphincters are clenched so tight. That's not the way to just be like, you know, jaw grinding master of yourself. Mm Mm-hmm. There is surrender involved in health, in, in, um, in peace, a certain amount of surrender of your, of control to something. I don't care what it is. And, and I'll tell you right now, the alcoholic is listening and saying, 
I don't want to be a slave. I don't want anybody to be the boss of me. And he's thinking all those people that surrender their control to religion or to their, you know, to whatever cult they're in or whatever. Um, I mean, the, the, the mentality, the ideology that we are all secretly under the mind control of a giant conspiracy that keeps us docile with television reptilians that just plays into it because the idea of, of saying God, whoever you are, I don't care. Little baby floating in a pram, um, little baby crawling on the ceiling, like out of train spotting. I don't care what baby it is. I just can't do this anymore. And I don't know how to stop. Please help. Oh, the idea of doing that. If you're, in the throes of an addiction, it is, it would be a worse indignity than to take all your clothes off and smear yourself with your own shit and walk through it, walk through your high school reunion, Jeez. you know, because it just feels, it goes against everything that you think about the world <clears throat> that I'm going to say I'm powerless to a ba- some fucking God and ask for help. Even if I believe in God, that's not how God works or whatever. And to get to the point where you do, where you feel ready to do it when it's the thing that you're constitutionally least able to do. I've never met a single alcoholic that walked in to AA and said, um, boy, things are really bad for me. What am I supposed to do? And they say, well, Except that you're powerless over alcohol and that your life is unmanageable. And they go, oh shit, you're right. Like this never happens. There's not a single person in there for whom it was easy. Every single one of them is like, what? No, I thought you guys had some kind of way for me to stop drinking. It's like, well, what if that's it? Well, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like, so what is that? I mean, what is alcoholism or, or addiction. Because when I, I keep saying or addiction, because I keep thinking of the gambler, the, uh, the addicted gambler for whom all of the same shit happens. They lose their family. They lose their house. They lose their health and they keep going back to the table and they keep thinking like this next time is going to be different. I'm going to recapture that thing. I'm going to get back up. And as soon as I do, I'm going to quit. As soon as I get my money back, I'm going to quit. And that's going to be the end. You know, they do the same exact dance. So I can't say that I can't, this is why I'm conflicted. I can't be against 12 step programs that help gamblers or that help because people are like this with food. People are, I mean, listen to me and my DiGiorno. Right. And yet it's not. It's not everybody. It's not even most people. And I, I wanted my friend Mark to not die. And honestly, even as it went along, you're always, you're always expecting something it's going to, something is going to intervene that there's going to be some 
something that interrupts it. And when people do die, it's often that they die of suicide or they die in an accident Mm -hmm. or that, you know, some other thing happens, but, but I'm 50 now, I'm not 25. And the people that I knew at 25 who drank themselves to death, what happened was they choked on their vomit or they froze to death because they were drinking, but the, but they didn't actually drink alcohol until their organs shut down, which is a kind of, which in some ways is like a pure alcoholic death. They didn't walk out in the snow and freeze. They didn't fall off a bridge. So I'd never, I guess at 50 had never watched somebody who just pickled themselves over enough time, but that's what happened to Mark drank himself until he just, you know, internal bleeding basically. And they, they, you know, they say that he fell in the end and knocked his head on a, on something, but he was bleeding out of his mouth. You know, it wasn't, uh, in a way, maybe he maybe he fell and, and bonked his head, and that was some <laughs> last <clears throat> tiny gesture of refusing to acknowledge that he had drunk himself to death. <laughs> maybe he finally, you know, he he fell and, and hit his head on a toilet <clears throat> in order to prove that. He was still in control. I don't know. I mean, that's just, that's the type of thing you say in an AA meeting and everybody laughs into their coffee because of course that's not what happened, but, but the spiritual aspect of it is the, is the craziest part because so many addicts are not spiritual. They reject it. It isn't rational. And I too am a rationalist. I do not look at, I do not generally look at, um, the third time of, excuse me, the third time a black cat crosses my path in a day. I do not attribute any significance to that, but it's inescapable that there is a spiritual aspect to us, whether it's connected to anything real in the outside world or not, it exists in us. There's a metaphysicality to us because where the fuck are we? Who are we? Why do we have a consciousness? Like none of it is explained by none of it is, is, is perfectly explained by doctors or by brain science. You know, there is, there is something about us that we can't explain. And that takes the takes the form of spiritual questions of spiritual paths of spiritual problems that aren't physical disease and they're not they're not fixable with the addition of some new salts into your diet or a tab of lithium mm-hmm. but how to sit and talk about your spiritual malady with, I mean, uh, who do we have to talk, 
to about that stuff. You have psychiatrists and psychologists who are trying to fix it through practice. You have priests and ministers who are trying to help you by getting you closer to a to a system to the to the notion of a of a sort of systemic god a, a, a clockwork universe a, um, a an intentional universe that your spirit is part of a collective but where else do you get it I mean, people get it by going to rock concerts and sitting there with uh, with all the fans of their favorite band mm-hmm. and bathing in the music. They get it by w- watching their team go to the Super Bowl. But what if you've got problems there? Yeah. Like, what, what do you do? Most people, honestly, they go have a beer with their friend and they say, ugh, my wife is a bitch. 